Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. So, Ratri means night. Shiva, as you know, is in one sense that mythological deity who is the ultimate symbol of renunciation, meditation, and absorption in spirituality. So often, you will see Shiva depicted in something like Padmasana or Ardha Padmasana, that is lotus seat or uh, half lotus, like sitting in meditation. So uh, Swami Nikilananda described Shiva as the supreme absolute of the Veda. You know, the idea that Shiva represents Brahman. And not only that, Shiva represents absorption in Brahman. As you'll recall, Brahman is, the name itself, Brahman, uh, means vastness, that vast ground of being that could quite aptly be called pure awareness. And the whole world arises from awareness, scintillates as an appearance within awareness, and ultimately um, dissolves back into awareness. So that awareness, Brahman, uh, Shiva is thereby a representation of one who is plunged into that profound silence and stillness. So often you'll see him seated in a meditation posture upon the uh, traditional tiger skin mat of the yogi, uh, surrounded by the icy Himalayas, you know, kind of conveying the sense of isolation and renunciation, really, someone who's moved away from the, you know, um, squeaky wheel, bullock cart world of city dwelling marketplace nonsense and he's left it all behind he's gone to the mountains and he's seated there and he's usually kind of naked you know he's clad only in a tiger skin loincloth and he's pretty bare chested and there he is in the cold himalayas heated up only by his internal fire by his tapasya by the inner heat generated by spiritual practice he's totally you know for all intents and purposes dead to the world you know and often you will see him kind of adorned by mortuary symbols maybe there's a skull nearby Oh, there might, he might be in a cremation ground, actually. There might be ash smearing his skin. And all of this is to symbolize that he has died to the outer world and has been reborn into an inner life. So that's the symbol of Shiva. And we'll kind of unpack that symbol a little bit today. So in one sense, Shiva Ratri is the knight honoring that mythological symbol, Shiva, um, who is indeed a god. And in one sense, you can think that to us Hindus, the virtues themselves are gods. Now, what is God? God is virtue. And where you see perfect renunciation, perfect meditative absorption, perfect selflessness, there is Shiva. That's why it's not difficult for us to look at the Guru and say, Ah, you know, Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Deva, Maheshwara, Guru Sakshat Param Brahma, Tasme Shigurave Namaha. The Guru is Brahma. The Guru is Vishnu. The Guru is the great God Maheshwara, Lord of all. The Guru is Shiva. Because to us Indians, when we see divinity embodied, that's worship worthy. And uh, there's no, no kind of qualms about throwing ourselves face first at the feet of the Guru to take refuge in the virtue that is embodied by such a being, you know. So the Christ was that. The Christ was love incarnate, purity embodied, the manifestation of the highest spirituality. And he strode about the Levant like a lion, awakening people to spirituality. The Buddha was like that. Like a lotus blooming, its fragrance will draw bees to it. The Buddha was a lotus that went out to the bees, you know. Upon his awakening under that tree in Bodhgaya, he sat up and he paced up and down the road until he was moved to kind of walk up and down India, left and right, establishing the Dharma. 
Shankara was like that. Shankara, who was often seen as an embodiment of Shiva, the great non-dual master of the 8th century, he too walked up and down India establishing temples, initiating people into Shakti worship, teaching non-duality, debating Buddhists, debating uh, uh, Purva Mimamsakas, debating Nyayakas, debating Vaishashikas. He was a very active fellow. So, the thing about these people is that they are embodiments of these virtues. So when you see a figure like Shiva, mythologically represented as a blue fellow meditating, what it's supposed to evoke in your mind is all of that. You know, you're supposed to feel that selfless compassion of the Buddha and the deep absorption of the Buddha in meditation. You're supposed to feel the purity and renunciation of the Christ, who so wonderfully said the foxes, even the foxes have holes to put their heads, but not, what is it, the foxes have holes, but the, the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. That's Shiva. And when you see homeless men striding about, especially the sadhus of India, clad in only a loincloth, striding naked in the icy Himalayas, that's Shiva, you know. So when you see all of that, it evokes in the mind that sense of Shiva. So Shiva Ratri is a celebration of that. And as you know, renunciation is the sacred ideal of India, the true maturity. And, and it's more than just wearing an ochre robe or wandering about naked. You know, in the Kula Arnava Tantra, the opening of the Kula Arnava Tantra, there's a rather scathing remark. Are minor birds great scholars because they can parrot back the words of their betters? Are donkeys great yogis because they wander about naked and smeared in dirt? <laughs> The idea here takes more than just some clever words and walking about naked or in a Gerua cloth to mark true renunciation. But where you see true renunciation, that is worship worthy to the Indian mind. And that's Shiva. So on a mythological level, Shiva is a representation of that. It's a deification of renunciation, yoga, meditation. So Shiva Ratri then appropriately is a night to honor those ideals. So every month, in the month of the, every month there's one new moon. It's the darkest night of the month. And as such, it's the best night to go deep, plunge down deep, dive down, oh mind. You know, as Ram Prasad says, dive down deep. Uh, so Shiva Ratri then, every month is an opportunity to meditate, to embody the ideal of Shiva. But of all the Shiva Ratris in a year, there is one special Shiva Ratri. It's called Maha Shiva Ratri. Maha means great. Ratri means night. Shiva, of course. Shiva, we just talked about it. Maha Shiva Ratri is the great night of Shiva. It's the new moon in the month of Maga, you know, the Vedic calendar. And um, it will be that new moon in just a few days. So March 1st is perhaps the most important night for Shaivas. It's a night marked by wakefulness, you know, because remember, yoga, uh, Spirituality is really about lucidity, vivid, vivid wakefulness. It's about awareness. You know, people are really interested in lucid dreaming. Uh, why not lucid waking? And as Westerfer said, why not both? What is samadhi but lucid deep sleeping? Lucid, lucid, lucid. Lucidity is the watchword in yoga. Now, that's why maybe um, ganja is some, sometimes wrongly attributed to Shiva. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know, man. <laughs> yeah, so every night is Shiva Ratri to the yogi. You know, this says in the Bhagavad Gita to the yogi, um, night is like day and day is like night. But Shivaratri especially. If Amanda, you thought I didn't sleep already, wait till you see Shivaratri. I'll be like, <laughs> you know, it's the best night of the year. Um, and what do we do? Well, you, you'd be surprised to find that in India, it's enough to just be awake. It doesn't really matter what you do. So in India, you'll find, you know, people like just play video games all night. You know, they'll just stay up. The important thing is that you're upright. 
Now, there's all sorts of esoteric explanations about some cojunct of this planet and that planet. There's an upsurge of energy. I don't know anything about that. You know, you can go and see some Jyotish expert about that. That's not my wheelhouse. Um, insert some kind of esoteric explanation here, whatever. Um, but people believe in India that you ought to be upright at least, at the very least. doesn't matter if you're doing spiritual activity or not. At the very least, sit upright. Don't lie down. You know, and so people will be up all night watching movies. You know, Bollywood movies are long. So three Bollywood movies will set you. You know, take three idiots, you'll watch that, you'll be fine. So then you can kind of go through the night watching movies, gambling, playing video games, you know, hanging out with your friends at the coffee shop, drinking chai after chai after chai. That's fine. Um, but one consideration here is that whatever spiritual practice you do, it's like, do some of you, you know, there's like those video games, those MMORPGs. I remember I used to play RuneScape and there were these weekends where you would have like double XP weekend or whatever. And there'd be all these memes about it, you know, where, you know, someone will be like in bed, um, in like a threesome situation, but they'll be on their laptop because it's maximum XP weekend or something like that. So it's, it's like that. It's like the maximum XP weekend of spirituality, <laughs> mystically speaking. So whatever you do is empowered that night. So you can insert your mystical explanations here, but maybe it's just as simple as saying, well, that night, you know, all of India and many other parts of the world, Desis all over the world will be up with you. You know, and you'll all be doing this together. And that generates a tremendous kind of field effect of everybody kind of coming together to celebrate spiritual life, to celebrate the highest ideals of India, renunciation and service embodied by this blue man sitting absorbed in the deepest meditation. You know? So that's the mythological dimension of Shiva. Tonight, we're going to talk about something a little subtler, something a little more philosophically rarefied. And that is um, the Shiva that appears to us in the Kashmiri Shaiva or non-dual Shaiva tradition. So the tradition that I grew up in is called the Advaita Shaiva tradition. It kind of culminated in Kashmir around the 9th and 10th century. And it was really championed by a few noted and, and, and key figures in Indian spiritual history, such as Abhinava Gupta, the great polymath of the 10th century, you know, who is at once a critic of art and dance and drama, and at the same time, uh, a linguist and a poet, and at the same time, a highly sophisticated spiritual master that was able to articulate and give words to some of the most sublime, ineffable experiences of spiritual life. So he's really India's mystic par excellence. You know, so Abhinava Gupta is there, and Abhinava's student, Kashema Raja, you know, who does a lot of wonderful work on his Guru's, Guru's, Guru's uh, texts, Ut Utpala Deva. So we're really studying what might be considered the penultimate crowning jewel of Indian spirituality tonight. And that is the Shaiva tradition, as expounded by the Kashmiri Shaiva philosophers, Abhinava Gupta, Kashema Raja, Utpala Deva, um, Ram Kanta. All these names are kind of important in the history of Shaivism. Now, um, as you know, in the 12th century, the Mughals invaded. So there was an invasion from the north. And this is the first time India had been invaded by a foreign power. So as a result, um, you know, a lot of temples were burnt. I, I like to make this joke, you know, and, and I, now I know we're in some strange times at present. But we've always been. It's something else to note. You know, there's always kind of been some kind of famine or disease or war. That's just Maya. That's just the Kali Yuga. No? But right now, I understand that we're, we're on the eve of perhaps some strange times and some distress. Um, and one thing to note, you know, uh, temples can be burnt down, but these philosophies remain untouched. As it says in the opening to the Course in Miracles, A Course in Miracles, nothing real can be harmed. Nothing unreal exists. Therein lies the peace of God. Today we'll unpack that statement. So you can destroy Shaolin temples, but you can never desecrate Shaolin, as that character says in that wonderful movie Shaolin. You know where Jackie Chan plays the chef? 
And he's like, I don't know Kung Fu. And it's a wonderful movie. But it's about, you know, the destruction of Shaolin and, and Tibetan traditions. And remember, the cultural revolution in China raised all these wonderful Tibetan monuments to the ground. Entire scrolls and books were cast into the fire and entire traditions overnight just vanished because of the cultural revolution and some of the violence that came about in that period. Similarly, in the Mongol invasion, temples were being burnt down. People were being pushed underground. Uh, the Tantric movement, which enjoyed state patronage for so many years, which of course allowed it to flourish and thrive, all of that overnight was gone. So no more state patronage for Tantra, no more temples where people could gather, discuss and practice, you know, and uh, everyone was dispersed. All the idols were kind of smashed. Um, and I like to say, you know, where are the Mughals now? Where is Mao now? You know, but we're still here. So that's the thing, you can't harm truth. You know, so what happened actually is that Mughals came in, right? And then the temples were destroyed or whatever. Um, but actually there was something very quite nice that happened there, which we'll talk about, kind of a synthesis of some world cultures that really helped India. But anyway, so Tantra moves south. So the new home base of Tantra becomes uh, Tamil Nadu in a, in a city called Sidambaram. Sidambaram is a great temple to the dancing Shiva. And people from the Tamil uh, nation move into Sri Lanka. So in northern Sri Lanka, in a place called Jaffna, uh, also a lot of Shaivism is rooted. And that's where my family is from. So that's kind of how the story of Shaivism comes down south. But back in the day, before the Mughal invasion, you should know that Shaivism was a pan-Indian movement. It was kind of the fad of medieval India. It was like the state religion, if you will. And it was the, um, I guess, nationwide adventure and spirituality. It was really interesting to India. And almost everything we know about Indian spirituality today is a highly tantricized form of spirituality that can be traced directly back to this movement that perhaps emerged around the 6th century AD. So as you can tell, it's, it's, it's particularly new. You know, it's 600 years into the common era. However, the religion of Shaivism is ancient. While the movement formally emerged around the 7th century, you know, common era, its roots stretch back to pre-Vedic civilization. And remember, Vedic civilization perhaps emerged around 4,000 BCE by liberal estimates or 1st or 2nd millennium BCE by conservative estimates. But in either case, there were civilizations before that, uh, but they were mostly kind of disparate groups of tribal communities, kind of like a shamanic folk religion that was indigenous to the Indian subcontinent that was never like formalized. There weren't any scriptures. Remember, what makes Vedic civilization so enduring is its profound like oral kind of record keeping tradition. So the Vedas, they are orally transmitted from one Brahmin father to his Brahmin son and onwards to the other son. And, you know, Indians, we have memories like a trap. <laughs> We're forced to memorize long texts from birth. And these texts are all written in meter. So you can't, like, fuck with it. You know, if you try to, like, move some alpha vowels out of the way or whatever, it will kind of mess up the rhythm and the structure of the text. So using rhyme and poetry and these internal structures of the Sanskrit meter and using the power of memory. Um, you know when you say we learn something by heart? That's kind of a poignant phrase, you know. Is memory is not in the mind. A lot of people think memory is a cognitive function, but I would argue memory is an emotional function. It's memory is something to do with the heart. You learn something by heart, meaning you internalize a teaching. You live it. You make it part of who you are until every fiber of your body vibrates with that teaching. You know, so one does not learn and memorize a Veda. One lives a Veda. And there are all these traditions in ancient India who memorized Vedas by learning them by heart, by integrating them, by internalizing them, and becoming an embodiment of that Veda. And they're called gurus. And those gurus have transmitted their teaching to Shisha students in an unbroken lineage of teacher to student up till this present day. 
It was a very remarkable thing. So Vedic civilization then has maintained its enduring kind of persisting quality because of this kind of oral transmission in a very sacred setting from teacher to student through the eons. However, tangential to Vedic civilization and developing as a kind of parallel culture is this tribal shamanic folk culture, you know, that was not so um, preserved because there weren't really texts. They were mostly tech cultures that emerged in local dialects, not in the highly formal and um, cultured Sanskrit. So these are uh, traditions that emerged with Prakrits. Prakrits mean natural languages like Pali or what have you. So they're different, you know, their cultural trajectory is a little bit different, but they're incredibly cool. And the interesting thing about Tantra in the 6th century is that these two streams of culture that have perhaps been parallel for so many millennia come together. In a wonderful alchemical explosion, the folk shamanic practices of the Indian subcontinent are merged and integrated into the Vedic mainstream, and the result is uh, Shaivism, you know. Uh, one of the crowning glories, I think, of Indian spirituality is that nothing is swept under the carpet. It's cumulative. It's kind of like math or science in some sense, where knowledge builds on what came before. And sometimes things are rendered, you know, obsolete and pushed out of the way. But notice, when uh, Einsteinian mechanics comes in, and I'm sure Liam will comment on this in a little bit, Newtonian mechanics isn't tossed. It isn't like, oh, we're just going to forget all about that. We'll never be able to predict where Halley's Comet is anymore because Newton is out. No, not really, right? We still use Newtonian mechanics for big, big things and, and Einsteinian for small things. And we're able to kind of say, oh, well, you know, these systems, they build on one another and we can kind of have them all together. It's like that with Indian spirituality. Uh, you preserve the oldest elements and you innovate and you have them all together in one great smorgasbord of spiritual celebration. So Shaivism then brings in these folk elements and that's why you get um, kind of these wild outsider deities. You know, like Shiva with his matted lock, uh, locks and covered in ash and hanging out in cremation grounds. You know, he's probably uh, very likely a Dravidian symbol. You know, in the Vedas, there appears this character Rudra and uh, nobody likes him. He's kind of like this outsider guy. In fact, Rudra in Vedic Sanskrit means howler or something like screamer. <laughs> so Rudra is perhaps the prototypical Shiva. Rudra is perhaps Shiva before he was kind of formalized as a symbol. So what does Rudra do? Well, he spooks people out. You know, in the Vedas, he just like frightens people. As you'll learn in the Puranas, he hangs out with ghosts and goblins and he spends all of his time meditating naked in the Himalayas. He is kind of aloof, doesn't involve himself in the comings and goings of um, Vedic ceremonies like yagnas and all that. He's, he's just out there um, in every sense of that word. <laughs> So the, he's not actually very popular amongst the Vedic patriarchs of the time. In fact, they're not even sure that he's a god. His motives are inscrutable. There's a kind of reverence that they have for him, you know, being an otherworldly being, but also a kind of fear and a kind of chastisement. Because he refuses to involve himself in the yagnas, because he's an outsider, and because he hangs out with ghosts and spooks and by himself, he's regarded with some suspicion, actually. So he's, I guess you could say, both a god and a demon king. Oh, it's a very confusing thing for the Vedic pantheon. The scholar Devdut Patanayak argues that this is perhaps a metaphor for Aryan cultures in the north coming into contact with Dravidian tribal cultures in the warmer regions of the south. So in the south, there was more of a focus on asceticism, mysticism, alchemy, magic. And in the north, there was more of a focus on ritualism and public ceremonies involving lots of money, all of that. So now these two streams come together and uh, there's a bit of a tension. 
So Rudra then, this howler, this screamer, this savage, um, seems to represent perhaps the Dravidian peoples as a whole. That's Devdut Patanayak's argument anyway. Okay, so what does Rudra do? Well, there's one story that I have to tell you from the Puranas. A story about Shiva, um, Rudra. So Shiva is seated uh, with some other gods in like a hall, you know, some kind of hall. And at the time, there was a Vedic patriarch, um, uh, Daksha. His name was Daksha. So the Vedic patriarch, he was perhaps you could think of him as like the Brahmin par excellence, the ultimate priest king of his time. And he was really good at performing these very complex Vedic rituals. You know, you had to have a, a deep and subtle understanding of astrology and math. It was very mathematically precise. And also you had to be a profound linguist. You had to really understand language and poetry. And you had to have a great memory. So basically this guy is like the ultimate, you know, um, fella of the Vedic society. So when he does rituals, it's very pleasing to these gods. They love it. And so he's got a kind of superiority complex. When he walks into the room, it's like Kesha. And the party don't stop till I walk in. That's Daksha. He walks in and then everyone's like, yeah, Daksha. So one day he walks into the hall and uh, everyone's cheering him and celebrating him and all the gods are so pleased with him. And he's like walking there, like kind of happy, you know. And then he notices in the corner of the hall, there is a fella sitting absorbed in meditation. That's our Shiva, of course. And the thing is, Shiva doesn't get up to greet Daksha. He doesn't stand up or anything. Not because he's trying to be a punk, just because he's so deeply absorbed in his meditation, so immersed in the bliss of contemplating the formless Brahman, that he doesn't notice Daksha walk into the room. You see, that otherworldly spirituality of Shiva is so beyond what's going on around him. He's like so inside. Anyway, Daksha notices that and flips out and hereby declares him a demon. Says, this guy is outside the pantheon. Don't worship him. Don't do yagnas to him. Don't pray to him. I, I don't like this guy. And so they kind of move away from Shiva. Daksha has a daughter though. And who does daughter fall in love with but the bad boy that daddy hates, right? So Daksha's daughter, Sati, falls in love with Shiva. And Sati has that kind of temperament where she's like into meditation and renunciation. So she ends up running off to the Himalayas to be with Shiva. Shiva is moved by her renunciation and meditation and her aptitude for spirituality. And their relationship is actually founded upon a shared love for subtle Upanishadic philosophy. So the two of them just discuss the formless Brahman and all that together and they're in love. And So there they are in the Himalayas, Shiva and Sati, the perfect pair. And they're up there. And by the way, their, their, their company is like ghosts and goblins. That's the thing about Shiva. He's like the king of these groups of people called the um, uh, Ganas. That's the name for them. Ganas is actually Malay and Indonesian for violence. But the word Ganas just means like evil spirit. So vampires, goblins, what have you. Um, and he's up there with the Ganas hanging out. So it's kind of a spooky scene. It's like Halloween up there. So they're hanging out and uh, there's this great sage, Narada. He's like a supreme yogi who can kind of move through all these realms. Um, now we're speaking entirely mythologically, yes? And soon we'll transition into the philosophy. As you know, mythology is like the clothing of philosophy. It's like the outer garment of philosophy. I actually have a teacher who says to me, don't confuse the two. Keep mythology and philosophy aside. And I'm kind of disobeying him. So sorry, Swamiji, uh, forgive me. <laughs> but... Um, here, we're going to transition to philosophical language in just a bit. But first, let's set up the mythology. It's a very kind of important mythology for the study of, of Shaiva philosophy. Anyway, Shiva and Sati are up there. And there's a sage, Narada, who kind of wanders up and down the realms, the swargas. And he comes into Shiva's realm, which is Kailash. 
metaphysical plane, you know. He comes into this realm and he says, oh, Shiva, hello. Um, and Shiva's like, what's up, Narada? You know, they're friends. And Narada says, I'm just on my way to Daksha's yagna. It's a huge yagna. It's the biggest party of all time. Um, you're coming, right? And then Sati goes, she's like slapped in the face because they didn't get an invite. You know, and Sati's like, how dare my father? And she goes, no, no, of course we were invited. Probably the invitation got lost in the mail or something. You know, so Sati says, yes, yes, we'll come. And Narada goes. And Sati turns to Shiva and says, we'll, we'll go, right? And Shiva goes, no, 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 no. Um, it's not going to be a good scene for us, my dear. Um, Daksha is not a fan of me. And I think it would be better if we just kind of stayed apart. You see, Shiva is refusing to participate in state religion. He's refusing to participate in like public, um, social, ritualistic religion because he prefers kind of introspective, meditative spirituality. You know? So there's a tension there and kind of a, a approach to spiritual life. You know, you might see this in someone like Saint Athanasius. Uh, by the way, today, my goal is to kind of explore the archetype of Shiva in all spiritual traditions. So Saint Athanasius or Saint Anthony, uh, you might consider him the first desert father because he felt life in Constantinople um, was too luxurious for the true practice of Christianity. So he left behind uh, his, or sorry, life in Alexandria. He was in, he was in Alexandria, I believe, was too luxurious. So he left that all behind to move into the deserts of Egypt to practice spirituality by himself alone. So when, uh, I almost said when Shiva went into the desert, but when Jesus, you know, when Jesus went into the desert um, for 40 days, that was pretty Shiva of him to just kind of be alone in the desert as an ascetic fasting and praying pretty shiva pretty metal as you might say so um uh anthony athanasius wanted to mimic that so he went to the desert there's another fellow that i like very much one of my favorite christian authors of all time um from the fifth century fourth century actually i think avagrius of pontius sorry if i freeze up by the way i think my connection just said oh, unstable so Pardon me. But Avagrius of Pontius. So Avagrius, he um, was a preacher. No, an orator, really. Back then, they weren't called preachers. They were orators. Remember, this is kind of like the infancy of Christianity. So for the first 300 years of Christianity, it was just like a ragtag group of people drawing fish in the sand and like hanging out uh, undercover. Uh, it wasn't really like a big movement yet until Constantine had made it the Roman state religion about 300 or 400 years after the Christ, right? So now it's like a big deal. So it's a big deal to teach. Christianity because we don't really know what it is yet there's like a Nicene Creed which books are canon which books are not uh, it's still kind of like the fresh birth of a tradition there's a lot of excitement in the beginning of a tradition you know? so in this time if you like spoke about it and taught it and you were an orator you would in very short order if you were good accrue fame and wealth and you know you know all of that so Evagrius was so gifted a speaker that he was like lavished with fame and wealth and one day he came to and realized that his lifestyle was just unchristian. You know, here he was speaking about the Christ and making money for it. He was disgusted with his lifestyle and he found himself getting particularly worldly. In fact, I think the story goes he had an affair with someone's wife, some rich baroness. And, and then he was like, oh my God, this is where I've fallen from the tree. So then he leaves Constantinople and goes to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there's a rich Roman lady, Melania, who actually moved there some time ago and started like a convent. And he went to live with Melania. Anyway, uh, because he's such a good orator, he got popular there too. <laughs> you see, where Evagrius goes, fame follows. It's kind of a good problem to have, some of you might think, but not for Evagrius. He was like, oh my God, I came to Jerusalem to get away from it all. And now I'm famous here. So then he upped and left Jerusalem and went into the desert, following the path of the desert fathers. 
these great kind of ascetics. And this is a very interesting time for Christianity because it marks the beginning of the Orthodox Church. So Evagrius and all these people, you know, um, and, uh, what is it, Nicephorus, and all these people are church fathers in the Orthodox Church. So the Philokalia is kind of a collection of their writings, the Desert Fathers, they're called. So that's that kind of Shaiva movement, you know, that idea of asceticism and personal spiritual life away from the city. So Shiva's expressing that. Back to our story. That was an aside. So Shiva expresses that, right? And and now um, Sati says, no, but my dear, we have to go. So Devdut Patanayak also argues a very interesting point. The role of Sati and later Parvati in reconciling Shiva and Vishnu or reconciling Shiva and Daksha in this case, which is Parvati, the mother, is trying to bring India together. She's trying to like bring the best of both worlds together. These both, these traditions both have their virtues and their drawbacks. You know, sometimes when you're all by yourself doing ascetic practices in the jungle or in the mountains, you get a little, you know, there's no lack of grounding, lack of interpersonal kind of sharing. Um, as a result, you kind of go off the rails. You can become very idiosyncratic and very like sorcerer oriented, where it's like power oriented, you know? There's no check and balance to what's going on in your personal life. Now, in the ritual, ritualistic thing, it can become very mechanical, ritualistic, social, like Sunday churchgoers. But there's the value of community and coming together and sharing experiences and checking and balancing one another. So there are virtues in both these traditions. And Sati is trying as hard as she can to bring them together, you see. <laughs> so anyway, she says to Shiva, well, if you don't want to go, I'll go. Because I, I know that we've been invited and I think it would be rude if we didn't go. And Shiva's like, all right, all right, you go on ahead. And so Sati decides to go, but he has this bad feeling about it. He's like, oh, okay, fine. But, you know, he's himself, he's got a bad feeling about it. So she goes, and when she arrives, to her horror, she finds that no seat has been put out for Shiva, for Maheshwara, for Mahadev. And, oh man, for an Indian woman, that is an insult intolerable. So she flies off the handle and she's like, Father, how could you do this? Don't you know he's my husband? I am your daughter. How dare you shame him in front of every, everybody? To shame a husband is to shame the wife. And this shame is unbearable. I will hereby cast myself into this fire. You know, she was so ashamed. She jumped into the fire. Nobody could stop her. Before they knew it, she was in the fire and she self-immolated. Yeah, not melodramatic at all. In fact, the later this would be called a sati, sati ritual, when one jumps into the fire to follow the husband. You'll see it in the Mahabharata and all that. So anyway, she 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 jumps into the fire and she's burnt up to a crisp. Shiva comes to learn of this. You know, Narada runs to Shiva and Narada says, My lord, there has been a tragedy. Um, please, are you sitting down? Because you're not going to like this. Of course he's sitting down. He's Shiva. And then Narada says, Your wife just jumped into the fire. You know what happens? Shiva, for the first time, perhaps, in aeons, this mythological god Shiva, for the first time, he feels grief, tremendous grief, because for the first time, he has an attachment, and for the first time, he loses something. The yogi has now come into contact with the world, and the world has stung him. You know, so he, he, he doesn't know what to do about this. And in fact, he kind of loses it. So the thing about Shiva is he's very paradoxical. On one hand, he's the perfect yogi sitting wrapped in meditation, perfectly absorbed, dead to the world. And if he's not sitting, he's usually dancing and destroying the world. So his other kind of expression is tremendous dynamic energy. And so when he hears about the death of his wife, 
he he just can't handle it and he starts to like dance in this kind of chaotic way and he's pulling at his hair you know and in one story in the puranas he pulls a lock of his hair and he throws it to the ground and from that lock of hair emerges a ferocious demon lord named Veera Bhadra Bhadra means like matted lock and Veera means hero so Veera Bhadra means the matted lock demon you know, and Virabhadra emerges with big fangs and he's like scary and he bows to Shiva and he says, what be thy will, my lord? And Shiva says, kill them all. You know, and Virabhadra with a pack of wolves, you know, and goblins and ghosts, they all, yeah, Virabhadrasana is named after this, this creature, this kind of, uh, maybe you could even say avatar of Shiva, form of Shiva. So Virabhadra, let's just mark this character Virabhadra. It's very important because for Kashmiri Shaivism, Bhairava becomes an important figure. So think about Virabhadra. Now he's this demon king, right? He's wrath, Shiva's wrath. Shiva is tremendously angry. And Virabhadra, an embodiment of Shiva's anger and grief, descends upon the wedding with a pack of rabid wolves and ghosts and goblins, and they kill everyone. You know, they splatter the pillars with blood and everyone's being grabbed by the hair and dragged into the center of the pit and decapitated. And Virabhadra goes to town and uh, it's they don't stop at the wedding. You know, this wild band of howling brigands go out into the world and the destruction spills into the rest of the world and everyone's being killed. Daksha has been beheaded. So um, now the world is being destroyed. Yeah, <laughs> I used to say, yeah, this is the red wedding ain't got nothing on Daksha's yagna. So... um. They, he goes out and the world is being torn asunder now. Anyway, there are other gods. So in the Puranas, there are kind of three main gods, three principal gods. And the Puranas are really kind of like a power struggle between the three. Who's the greatest god kind of a question, you know? So the other two, Brahma and Vishnu and a bunch of other gods are all kind of freaking out about this. They're like, what shall we do? You know, there's, there's the world and it's being destroyed and creation is being torn, torn asunder. The destructive force of Shiva, the destroyer. Someone needs to pacify Shiva. Please do something. And in one story, Narada goes to Shiva and begs him to stop. And apparently Shiva comes to his senses. You know, he, he, his anger subsides and he, he realizes what he did. And he goes, yeah, I'm not Daksha. You know, so he goes back to the wedding. He goes, to, not to the wedding, to, to the Yagna. And he brings everyone back to life, including Daksha. You know, because Daksha's wife is like crying. She's like, oh, he's dead. And Shiva says, I, I'm not Daksha. I'm, I, I can be the bigger man, you know? So he brings Daksha back to life. But the thing is, right, uh, Daksha was beheaded by Shiva's trident. And there's one rule in Indian mythology, if you've been beheaded by Shiva's trident, there's no putting that head back on. So instead, Daksha gets the head of a donkey or a head of an ass. <laughs> so he gets, that, that head gets put on. And he, but he is brought back to life. Yeah, exactly, Ganesh, as we'll see in a bit. So uh, Daksha is brought back to life. Everyone's brought back to life, but Shiva is heartbroken. You know, so he forest gumps it. He decides to just walk and walk and walk. But not before. He picks up... Oh, by the way, because he could bring everyone back to life, they said, why don't you bring your, your wife back to life, Sati? And his response is actually startlingly beautiful. He says, who am I to undo the decision of my wife? I have to respect what she chose. She decided to jump into the fire and end her incarnation out of protest. Who am I to rob her of that? So he decides not to bring her back to life, actually, even though it's within his power. So instead, he picks her up and places a kind of charred body on his shoulder and just walks. You know, he's, he's just torn up in grief. So he just walks and he wanders the cosmos walking with Sati. And because he's not no longer kind of involved in the world as Shiva meditating, and, and, and the implication here is that his meditation is sustaining the world in some sense, because he's not meditating, the world's balance kind of goes awry. 
and the world starts to disintegrate. And so now Vishnu has another problem. He, he's like, okay, we stopped Shiva from destroying the world, but now Maheshwara is not meditating anymore. You know, he's torn by grief. So what are we going to do? So Vishnu sends his discus and the discus starts to chop up Sati bit by bit. It cuts off her feet and then her legs and Sati's body starts to fall apart and every place where Sati's body lands in India is called a Shakti Pita. You know, Pata means like, Pat means like fall, to descend. So Shakti Pita means a place where Shakti descended or Sati descended and it's a pilgrimage site. So in Tantra, there are various Shakti Pitas in India, all over India and they're power centers. If you go there and do spirituality, it's like maximum XP weekend. You know, because these are the places where Shakti's body fell. Um, anyway, Shiva's grief slowly gets cut up and Sati disintegrates. And finally, he's relieved. Some of you have been in this Tantra class a long time. You know what's going on here, right? This is Hatapaka, digestion by meditation, right? Anyway, so, uh, so those of you who have been in the Tantra class for a while, all of this symbology is like obvious to you, I hope. You're like, oh, that's... That's Rakta, Vimarshana. Yes, yes, okay. That's Vimarshana is going on here. Rakta and Vimarshana, to be technical with you. Okay, anyway. Um, and for those of you just joining us, don't worry. Let the mythology sink in. We'll unpack it a little bit today, God willing. So Shiva goes back to his meditation. And now we'll flash forward to a kingdom in the mountains ruled by this king named Himalaya. Himalaya, you know, the, the, the mountain personified. King Himalaya. And King Himalaya has a daughter. Her name is Gauri, which means like mountain queen or mountain lady. Gauri, or Parvati, another name for her, um, was born as an incarnation of Sati. So Sati, having been self-immolated, reincarnates as the daughter of this mountain king. Um, and from birth, she has an ardent devotion to Shiva. So all she does is make lingams all day and pray to Shiva and do Shiva puja and meditate. And in her meditation, she contacts Shiva. You know, it's like this kind of psychic connection they have. And Shiva goes, Sati? And Parvati says, yes, I'm here. Isn't that so sweet? So then they arrange a wedding. In fact, Shiva sends some people over and they go to kind of tell King Himalaya about this great wedding. Shiva wants to marry your daughter. And uh, all these um, great sages are convincing the mother, the queen, that this would be a good match. And she says to the mother, he's so handsome. He's so radiant. He's the greatest of all the gods. Because remember, the sages, they have a special relationship with Shiva. To the sages of India, Shiva is like the penultimate. In fact, in one legend, it's Shiva that teaches them the Vedas. He appears in this form called Dakshina Murti. Um, who, Dakshina Murti means southward facing one. So he sits and he teaches them through silence alone which is an idea that becomes very important in Buddhism, this idea of direct transmission through silence. So Dakshinamurti just sits there. The five sons of Brahma are around him, right? Buddha and five people. Soon you'll realize that India is very mythologically consistent, Buddha and his five friends. Anyway, so Dakshina is sitting here with five sons of, of Brahma and he conveys the teaching, the highest teaching of the Upanishads silently, just by sitting there through meditation alone. In fact, the best way to learn from a guru is just to meditate with them. Oral instruction is superfluous. You know, it's vibe. It's a vibe thing. Anyway, so Dakshinamurti, this great teacher of the sages, the sages are extolling him, praising him to the mother of, of Parvati. And so the mother is very happy and excited and they arrange the wedding. Now, on the day of the wedding, 
All the gods are coming. Yeah, I think so, Westifer. Panchaskanda, maybe. I've always argued that the Buddha's five friends are perhaps metaphorical of the Panchaskanda, the five aggregates of Buddhism, or perhaps the five senses, the Buddha being the buddhi, teaching the mind and the body, right? Yeah, some metaphors there. Yes. Anyway, so Shiva, now the day of the wedding arrives. And I love this story. I think this is one of my favorite stories. Um, the day of the wedding arrives. We're just blitzing through a bunch of stories here. But the day of the wedding arrives. And, um, you know, the mother is standing on the balcony with Narada, this great sage. He's kind of like the messenger of the gods. He's like a Hermes figure. So Narada and the mother are standing and there's a huge procession of gods all coming to the wedding. Remember, Shiva's a big deal. He's Maheshwara, the great Lord. Um, and so all these other gods are coming to the wedding. And one by one, they enter into the courtyard of King Himalaya's court, uh, uh, castle and so the mother is saying oh is that shiva and she points at surya the sun god and narada says no 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 that's surya shiva is far more handsome far more godly uh you know far more uh, praiseworthy and she goes okay okay then suddenly comes yamaraj the god of death and she says, is that shiva and narada says no 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 shiva is far more handsome far more praiseworthy far more godlike and then suddenly uh kubera the god of wealth comes. And then uh, Parvati's mother goes, oh, that must be him. Is that Shiva? No, 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 no. Shiva is far more godlike, far more praiseworthy, far more handsome. And then Vishnu comes. Uh, Vaishnavas won't like this. And then, you know, the mother says, is that Shiva? It has to be Shiva. That's the most beautiful one I've seen thus far. Oh my God. My daughter is so lucky. And the mother says, no, 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 no. Shiva is far more praiseworthy, far more handsome, far more godlike. And then... Shiva arrives. He arrives covered in ash. His hair is dirty and matted and full of twigs. He comes in riding this ugly bull. Everyone else has wonderful chariots of gold, gilded. He comes in with this bull. And everyone else came in with Gandharvas, you know, the singing celestial song makers of heaven. Andromeda would like them, the Gandharvas. Many people come in with Apsaras, like these celestial nymphs. But Shiva, he comes in with goblins and trolls and ghosts and the Ganas. And the mother looks at them and says, like, oh, who is that? And Narada goes, Jai Shiva Shambhu, Jai Maheshwara. My lady, that is our Lord Shiva. And the mother faints. <laughs> She pauses out in horror, you know, and when she comes to, everyone's fanning her, she comes to, hell hath no fury than an Indian queen scorned. She jumps out of a seat and she says, this is not to take place. My daughter will not marry this fiend of a, of a, of a god, you call him, more like demon. Call off the wedding at once. I'm done with this. And she's like striding and all the sages are like, no, mother, no. Now, meanwhile, Parvati realizes what's going on. So she goes downstairs and grabs Shiva by the ear and says, I'm cleaning you the fuck up. So she drags him into the bath, throws him into the bath and bathes him and kind of cleans his hair and oils his hair and makes him kind of, you know, decent. Again, you're seeing the role of Sati or Parvati in kind of making the South more, I don't know, presentable to India or kind of bringing yoga into the mainstream by showing, you know, what it's really worth. The sages understand because they see beyond appearances, but maybe people don't, you know. Remember, spiritual life is like an inversion. What other people think is good, spiritual people think is bad. And what other people think is bad, spiritual people see as a profound opportunity for deepening. As the Bible says, wisdom with God is foolishness with the world, right? Anyway, 
Parvati cleans him up, and uh, now he's all resplendent. And the thing is, once Shiva has cleaned up, oh, now that's a whole other thing. Now he's, you know, so he is walking, and uh, the, the mother runs out of the room, and she's like, go and call off the wedding. She's like, ah, and then she bumps into the chest of someone. And then she looks up, and she sees Shiva. And in a half-whispered tone, she says, so godlike, so handsome, so praiseworthy. And the wedding continues, and they're married. And Parvati and Shiva go off and live in the mountains. And their joy, their, their real delight is discussing spirituality together. So this is important because Shiva, as a symbol, has now transitioned from being the ascetic to being the householder. So it's Parvati that turns the ascetic, aloof, otherworldly Shiva into the compassionate, benign God that we know as Maheshwara. So without Parvati, Shiva wouldn't give a damn about our concerns. But thanks to her, his heart has been softened and he now becomes the ultimate father of the world. And he becomes very compassionate and loving. And in fact, he's one of the easiest gods to please. You know, from becoming like, from going from, you know, the, the kind of aloof fellow in the Himalayas meditating to the most benign god, only a woman could do something like that. <laughs> so Parvati totally softens him. You know, remember, Parvati is not like Lakshmi, who is like elegant and beautiful. That's Vishnu's thing. He's into that. Shiva's not attracted to that kind of thing. What turns him on is devotion, piety, yoga, astuteness, scholarliness. You can say he's into the, 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 the kind of bookish women, I suppose. <laughs> so Parvati is like that. She's the supreme kind of tapasvin, ta, uh, tapasvi, the, the ultimate ascetic. And it's her asceticism that um, inspires Shiva. In, in, in fact, in one Purana, in another story, Shiva doesn't want to be married, actually. He, he rejects being a householder. But Parvati out-meditates him. She goes and sits on a rock and meditates so powerfully that the whole world starts to like tremble, torn asunder by her spiritual force. Uh, you see something about spirituality tearing the world apart. Just note that. And so Shiva goes to her and says, whoa, whoa, stop, lady. You know, who are you? And wow, <laughs> what are you doing later, I suppose? Let's grab coffee or something. Let's grab Soma or something. So um, in that story, you know, Shiva is moved by her asceticism. So Parvati is the ultimate woman sage. Where Shiva pisses Parvati off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the Annapurna story. So many stories. I'll save it for Monday though. Monday we're also having another class, another uh, kind of. Today I wanted to be a little more philosophical. So I think we've got all the infrastructure we need. Um, Monday I'll tell you the Ganesha story and all of that. So, um, yeah, what an icon. So, Shaivism, this is Shiva. Shiva is a symbol, you know, Shiva is the householder. So, Shiva is a very benign god. So, there's one story where a thief, who is kind of like an asshole, the ultimate kind of just unspiritual, worldly person. He's running from uh, cops. So the cops are chasing him, trying to book him or whatever, and he's running. And he climbs up a tree. And there's a, a tree that's very sacred to Shiva. It's called the Bilva tree, the Vilvam tree. I don't know what it's called in English. But he climbs up this Bilva tree. And um, he's he's hiding in the tree. And suddenly he accidentally shakes a branch. And these Vilva flowers fall from the tree. And it just so happens that there is a Shiva lingam, the symbol of Shiva, um, under that tree and the bilva flowers fall on the Shiva lingam and that qualifies as worship to Shiva and Shiva immediately appears and saves the thief no questions asked he's that benign in fact demons go to Shiva not only for yoga instruction but also to pray to him you know Ravana is a great Shiva in, in the Ramayana the great kind of antagonist of the Ramayana he is a Shiva Bhakta because, and the problem is Shiva gave him all these things that made him so powerful that, uh, you know, Rama had to come down and or Vishnu had to come as Rama and kill him. Because Shiva, the thing about Shiva is he has attained that goal of the Bhagavad Gita, that goal of the Upanishads called Sama Drishti. Drishti means to see, Sama means same. 
So once you see everything as consciousness, then you don't really distinguish between good or bad anymore. It's all just consciousness. So God, demon, man, woman, nothing to Shiva. He's gone beyond all duality. So he doesn't care if you're a demon. If you pray to him, he'll do whatever for you. That's the thing. Shiva is kind of an easy God to please. And when it comes to Shiva puja, it's one of the easiest pujas to perform. Just a few leaves in water. You know, it says in the Bhagavad Gita, even a leaf offered with sincerity and devotion, anything offered with love is enough to please me. That's what it says in the Gita. Um, but when you start to learn pujas, like I do the Kali puja, oh my God, it's a lot. It's so nyasa, and there's so many things you have to do for all the other deities, right? So much upkeep. But Shiva, just throw a leaf his way and he's satisfied. He's a benign God with a benign smile, very easy to please, very mild-mannered. He's such a peaceful, like he's so immersed in the peace of meditation that he's the ultimate chill guy, you know, ultimate type B fella. And he just loves everyone so much, he's the ultimate father of the world. So when you pour water on the Shiva Lingam, the idea is that Parvati's these water is going to bring Shiva's grace down into the world. Parvati is always seated to his left and the spout always goes to the left. You know, so the water flows down the spout into the world. So Parvati, thanks to her, thanks to Shiva's wife, Shiva, the fierce ascetic aloof fellow, becomes a householder. And as a householder, now he can care for the world and take care of everybody without losing his penchant for meditation. So remember, he's the ultimate householder ascetic, the ultimate tantrika, as we'll see in just a few moments. So anyway, that's the story of Shiva. Now, the religion of Shaivism is the cult that grew up around Shiva, like this devotion to Shiva. Shiva to a Shaiva. Shaiva means devotee of Shiva. To a Shaiva, Shiva is the penultimate deity. A Shaiva doesn't even think about the rest of the pantheon. Shaivas are fiercely monotheistic. It's Shiva, 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 Shiva. You know, I love Shiva so much. So much poetry has emerged in the Indian subcontinent to Shiva, mostly South Indian poets, like Manika Vasahar, the poet I grew up with predominantly, who Tamil speaking. And uh, in the Kannada language, great poets like Mahadeviyaka. And I think today, if we have some time, I'll read you a little Mahadeviyaka. Anyway, so here, Basana, Basavana, all these great South Indian poets. So you can see it's really a pan-Indian movement and very predominantly in the South, in the medieval tradition. So, okay, now we have Shaivism, right? One thing to note is that Shaivism is what, uh, sorry, within Shaivism emerges Tantra. So Tantra is a kind of ritualistic orientation to Indian spirituality that has a few key innovations. And the key innovations are the use of murthis, which are kind of like elaborate icons representing philosophical principles as a part of spiritual practice. Many scholars, like George Furstein, argue that before Tantra, there was no idol worship in India, really. There's one kind of hymn in the Vedas about dressing up Agni, as if they were kind of adorning this Agni. But really, Agni is fire, right? So it probably meant like throwing ghee into the fire to adorn Agni. But before Tantra, there probably wasn't like, you know, putting clothes on bronze statues, things that would later freak out Christian missionaries. But Indians didn't actually, you know, like believe that these idols were God. They just saw that idols were a way to interact with the formless. Later, I'll show you that the idols are actually God. You know, there's actually the final step in Indian philosophy is that everything is God. Everything is consciousness. God is consciousness. And you're that consciousness, which we'll hopefully kind of establish today briefly. So um, now we have this murti. That's the first thing. Then other things the, in the puja itself, the ritual worship, you have things like mudra which really means delight, inner disposition, but it expresses itself as bodily postures called karanas that later turn into the poses of hatha yoga in the 12th and 13th century. You have things like um, 
hand gestures, sacred seals, you know, that people would do inspired by the energy of puja. You have things like mantra, a different kind of a mantra practice has been there since the Vedas, but a different kind of mantra practice using certain non-Vedic sounds called bij mantras, like cling and cling. In fact, there was a lot of anxiety actually about using these sounds. You know how Christians today in some parts of America are afraid to practice yoga because they're worried they're going to be possessed or something? Wait till they learn what virabhadrasana means. <laughs> but, you know, um, just like some Christians are frightened to practice yoga here in America, back then actually a lot of people were frightened to chant to these um, tantric mantras because they were non-Vedic and they were kind of shamanic and people were frightened of them. It's called mantra shanka, exactly, Luz. Mant- shanka is Sanskrit for anxiety. So mantra shanka means anxiety about mantras. That was a thing back then in, you know, in India. Anxiety about chanting certain mantras. But these bij mantras, you must have heard them. Kring, we chanted a few today. Brang, your guru will give you one. So when you get initiated, Oh, and that's another thing. Diksha. Another thing that was very important in Tantra is initiation. Diksha. Which, as you know, is an Upanishadic tradition. Right? Like teacher to student. But now, in Diksha ceremonies, what you are getting is a mantra. The teacher will whisper it to you. And then that's your mantra. You know, Chad knows all about it. You know. Um, but like these mantras, you don't reveal it to anyone. It's secret. It's just for you. And that's your primary spiritual practice. So you've got your mantras, your mudras, your karanas, your murtis. And most importantly, the techniques of tantra were kind of very nuanced and specific energy channelization technique. It's called yantra. Yantra basically means to control. And yantras typically are geometric designs used to focus the mind. So I don't know if you can really see it, but there's a kali yantra behind me. Anyway, that's not that important. But... um it's super important for the tradition, but not that important for this lecture that you see one right now. But yantras, you know, we've got all these kind of things that are unique tantric um, innovations. So tantra then is a Shaivite movement. Now, a lot of people have been confused for a long time as to whether tantra emerged in Buddhism or in Shaivism. And uh, the scholar Alexis Sanderson, who is in Oxford and perhaps one of the most prolific scholars in the West uh, on tantra, uh, has kind of definitively shown now in his research that he found this like old Buddhist text that was criticizing Shaivism. And it's a really old Buddhist text. And if it was criticizing Shaivist Tantra, it means that Tantra kind of predated that. So it was in dialogue of, of Tantra and, and it's a Shaiva movement. So we know that now. Tantra emerged within Shaivism. And remember, in the beginning, Tantra was a dualistic ritual tradition. Nothing to do with sex or anything like that. Now, the word now has taken on new meanings that were totally alien Back then. What does Tantra literally mean? Well, Tan means to expand or to stretch. Like in the yoga pose, Uttanasana, intense stretch pose. So Tan means to stretch. Tra means like device. So Tantra means like device to expand the mind. But really, the word Tantra, beyond this kind of etymology, literally just means a book, a type of book. So the Tantric tradition then, Tantra, really it was given that name because of a set of texts that emerged in 6th century India called the Tantras. And the Tantras, as a genre, predominantly featured a conversation between Shiva and Shakti. It was kind of like a genre thing. Shiva and Parvati, that is. They were both kind of talking about spiritual matters. And, you know, that's kind of why these stories are nice because there is a mythological basis to this tradition. Now, Traditionally, and this is important, Tantra is a dualistic ritual movement with the intention of removing malas. Malas are actual impurities that impede your relationship to Shiva. No? There are these malas are actual things, actual impurities. And as long as the malas are there, they act like a cataract preventing you from seeing Shiva in everything. 
So a uh, ritual then, a puja, was a kind of surgical procedure, energetically surgical procedure, meant to remove that cataract and show you the vision of the divine so you could stand to Shiva in a dualistic relationship. Yeah, we'll explain it in a little bit. I'm not really sure what malas is exactly they had back then because my tradition is more uh, non-dual tradition and we have three malas, which I'll explain to you in a little bit. I I'm sure they had other malas back then. I'm not really sure what it was, but it's enough to know now that just kind of on a theoretical level, the ritual was meant to remove these impurities and they were seen as actual impurities. This is important, the actual impurities. In a dualistic tradition, God is a transcendental being that is different from this world. And you, the jiva, the individual, um, stand in a kind of devotional relationship to God. And your role as an individual was not to become God. That's blasphemy. It's to get closer to God or rather to worship God in a way that's pleasing to God. In other words, it's to establish an actual working relationship between you, the jiva, and Shiva. So jiva to Shiva stand in a relationship where there are two. You, the jiva, are in the world and Shiva is in Kailash, some transcendental world. And you use this ritual to bridge the gap between you two. So you can be absorbed in Shiva. Now, dualism is beautiful, right? Anybody who studied Christianity, who didn't have it shoved down their throats, but who has actually been in a real kind of environment of bhakti, are so beautiful to be in a relationship to God. You know, in the bhakti traditions, the Vaishnava traditions, they have all these different attitudes, like God as a master, the Dashya attitude, God as a lover, the Madura attitude, God as a friend, Sakya attitude, you know? God as, um, as Ramakrishna would model for us, God is a mother. So these ideas of like relating to God as the father, as the mother, as the brother, as a sister, all of that as a friend, as a child. I love that, the Vatsalya attitude, God as a child, baby Gopala, take care of God, you know. Um, all of these attitudes are so rich. If you're in spiritual life, it really helps to have this kind of working relationship with the divine, where you pray, where you talk to God, where you take refuge in God. It's wonderful. Dualism is wonderful. And uh, that's the first kind of Shaivism, you know, that we get. So eventually, new schools of Shaivism develop. So let's just call what we've talked about thus far the Dakshina Marga. Marga means path. Dakshina means south. So we could call this the Dakshina Marga, or actually a better thing to call this is Siddhanta. Siddhanta means like something like orthodoxy. So the Shaiva orthodoxy is a tantric, ritualistic, dualistic tradition. So let's just put that there for now. But you know what happened? Um, people started having mystical experiences that caused them to innovate the tradition. And India is very susceptible to innovation and it really welcomes this kind of deepening because innovations are really just references to things that came before making a reappearance, you know? So it's never really new. It's just an old thing re-emerging. So what were the innovations? Well, Tantra started to move more and more left, you know? So we're just going to set up a horizontal axis here for the sake of pedagogy. So let's say Dakshina Marga, Siddhanta Tantra is Orthodox Tantra. Let's just call it the right-hand path right side tantra suddenly you started to see more goddess worship the emphasis was taken off shiva and placed on shakti on parvati um so suddenly goddess worship becomes more important why because that was the predominant shamanic orientation god is a mother you know, God is the divine night, Mahamai, the great illusion, Maharatri, the lady of the night, the great night. So she started making a reappearance as Shiva's wife. Remember, Shiva's a madman, outcast, wild fellow. So so is his wife. You know, she's like this wild-haired Devi. 
um, the dark-haired Devi, she's called. And she's given names like Kali. Anyway, old deity coming back. So now we start to move to the left. And the further left you go, and I'm going to use Alexis Sanderson and his protege Christopher Wallace's kind of phrase here. The further left you go, the more non-duality you get, the more goddess worship you get. Um, and generally, the more like emphasis on Siddhis, powers, magic, sorcery. And if you go further, further, further to the left, you get to something called the Vama Marga, which is left-hand path tantra. Now there's like wine and meat, you know, so people, it's, it's the, the, the three M's, wine, meat, and fish. Things are totally taboo to Vedic society. They're like doing it now. Uh, so there's wine, there's meat, there's fish. There's all these kind of like crazy magical rituals. And at its worst, it descends into sorcery and black magic. So in, in America, Tantra kind of, you say that word, people think, oh, orgy in Topanga Canyon. But in India, when you say Tantra, sometimes people say, oh, black magic. Oh, scary stuff. Kundalini, oh, scary stuff. So that's all the way on the left. So if I set up this, this scale for you now, right hand being dualistic religion, left hand being like sorcery, look over here. So this part right here. So this is super right, super left, closer towards the left, but not descending into sorcery. There is a group of schools that emerge. They're called the Bhairava Agama. Uh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, don't worry. I'll get it to you. So the Bhairava Agama, you know, yes, they do. They do. They all get uploaded, these, these lectures. Bhairava Agama are, um, by the way, tantras, you can also call them agamas. Agama means like to be handed down. So agamic literature is a type of literature that's handed down from, uh, you know, lineage-based kind of tradition. So the Siddhanta Agama, agamas are cool. They're there. They're the right-hand path stuff. But then there also emerges about like 80 or so Bhairava agamas. And the Bhairava agamas are what I'm talking about now, kind of to the left. And they're incredibly, intoxicatingly non-dual. And what does that mean? Essentially, it means that there is no real separation between you and Shiva. And more than that, it means that Shiva is actually pure awareness. And that pure awareness is what you are at your essence nature. So you don't become Shiva. You don't get closer to Shiva. You are already Shiva. For only Shiva is. Everything else is also Shiva. So Shiva is the only thing that exists. You know, so now your job in left-hand path, I'm sorry, not left-hand path, my bad. In uh, Bhairava Agama Tantra, your job is to merely recognize that fact. You don't need to become spiritual. You don't need to add anything onto you that's missing. You already are perfect. You just have to remember, recognize, so that you can embody the perfection that you already are. Now in this tradition, if only Shiva exists, right, there is nothing secondary to Shiva that could dilute Shiva. In other words, there couldn't be real malas. Malas, impurities, cannot be an actual thing because that would imply that there was something other than Shiva that inhibits Shiva. So in this tradition, the malas, the impurities, are just intellectual errors. They're not sins or even impurities is the wrong word. They're just kind of cognitive mishaps that have caused someone to forget their essence nature as Shiva. But just because you forget a fact doesn't change the fact. Just because you don't know that you're Shiva now doesn't mean you're not Shiva. Exactly. It's just a misalignment with truth. You've just become unstuck a little bit in your intellect. And as a result, 
You've forgotten your essence nature. And as a result, you live in a nightmare world where there are things that you desire that cause you tremendous restlessness because you crave them and are caught in the cycle of chasing them only to be ultimately unsatisfied when you do get them. And there are things that you fear which you perpetually try to run from, but that ultimately prove to be inevitable anyway. Old age, sickness, death, loss of loved ones, blame, etc. This is the nightmare world that we live in. Why? Because we really believe that we are this body, this mind, living in a world of other bodies and other minds. And that's a pretty messed up world to live in. It's frightening, you know? And you run around, driven one way by desire, driven another way by fear. What is desire really but an expression of fear? I'm going to say now that what you desire is really, really deep down inside a fear of not having that thing. So ultimately, even desire is fear. I desire this person because I'm afraid of what my life would look like without that person. So really, the definition of the unenlightened state is fear. And this is really important. What is the root of fear? Duality. The idea that there exists something apart from you. Other people, other things, real malas, real impurities, a real thing called sin. These things are pretty frightening, no? It's frightening to think that there's a devil or that there's sin or that there's something other than God. As long as you have duality, you must have fear because there's something other than you that can limit you, that can threaten you. So what is the definition of unenlightenment? Fear. Baya. Baya is Sanskrit for fear. Why then is Shivaratri an important night? Because it's the darkest night of the month. This is the time to go to the cremation ground. For some people, literally. But perhaps for us, metaphorically, go to the cremation ground, look your fear in the face and realize fear is not Baya, it's Bhairava, the fierce form of Shiva appearing to you in this way, you know. So if everything is Shiva, so too is your fear, so too is your sadness, you know. So we're going to explore, sorry, I'm getting a bit hot in here. We're going to explore how that teaching Talking about Shiva always like kind of heats me up. It's like, ah, I'm so excited. About it. But um, uh, now the teaching then of uh, these schools, by the way, we said earlier, right? It's about recognizing your true nature. So the operative word here is Pratya Bighya. Uh, Bighya, sorry, Pratya Bighya means to recognize. Recognizing is the act of seeing something and knowing what it is you are seeing. So right now you're Shiva, right? You just don't know it. So this tradition's role now is to offer you a technique, a language, a system of concepts that points you beyond the concepts to an immediate uh, perception of reality. I wouldn't call it an apperception of reality, aparokshana bhuti, if you will, a kind of primordial contact with reality. And what's the reality? You're Shiva. So the tradition then is meant to trigger in you a recognition. You're already seeing Shiva, by the way. Look at something. Look at it. The Shiva. But to us, bottle. Right? I look at this and I go, bottle. What do you mean, Shiva? This doesn't inspire in me any kind of reverence or beauty. I don't feel like this is me and I'm Shiva and that's Shiva and it's Shiva appearing to Shiva for the sake of Shiva. No, no, no. Fancy words, nice poetry, but that's not how I feel. I look and I say bottle. The goal of this tradition is to train your mind to see what's actually there. Remember, this is not an ethical imperative. It's not saying you should see Shiva. It's not saying, oh, it would be nice if you pretended like this was Shiva. Oh, what a nice way to live your life, to pretend like everything is you. No, no, no. It's a descriptive truth. It's saying, look at it. Really look at it. It is Shiva, whether you like it or not. Whether you know it or not, it's Shiva. And so are you. And the tradition then is training you to see and to understand what it is you are seeing. 
And that's called recognition. So one school that emerges in Shaiva, uh, Kashmir Shaivism is called Pratyabhigya. And together we study that text called the Pratyabhigya Hridaya Sutra, which is Kshema Raja commenting on the original text, the Pratyabhigya Sutra. You know, his, his, his text is called the essence of that text, <laughs> the true gist of this tradition. And it's the text that I think is very important to our tradition. But there are other texts, very important texts too. There's a really big text called the Rudra Yamala Tantra, which is now lost to us. But within it, there's a text called the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, which is what we would call an Upaya Shastra, a science of means and techniques that anybody can practice to immediately realize this truth, that you are Shiva. Um, there's a school called the Krama School. Krama is a very important school because if you've seen Kali, she comes entirely from this Krama school. It's thanks to the Krama school that we have such an articulated form of the goddess, Kali. Everything you've heard in the world of yoga, chakra, kundalini, all of this is Krama. It's the Krama school that gives us these no concepts of like kundalini shakti, chakra, all that, uh, nadis, all come from Krama. It's one of perhaps the most mystical schools of Shaivism. So hopefully now you can see how much influence Shaivism has on Hinduism as a whole and on South Asian spirituality. To say nothing of tantric Buddhism, right? Okay, now let's start the like, final part of this class, which is, I, th- I would argue, the most important. Now, I was thinking we would open with it, but inspiration took us elsewhere. Um, this is the actual teaching. Now, these tantras, these kind of krama, pratya, bhikya, and um, I guess you could say spanda tantras, their promise is very profound. The promise is all you need is to hear this teaching once. In fact, this tradition is called Anupaya, meaning the pathless path. As we explained last week, you don't need any spiritual practice. All you do uh, is listen to the teaching and it should trigger in you an immediate recognition of what you are. And once you have that recognition, you'll know you had it, by the way, because from that point on, you will be joyful and fearless. You will suddenly realize that there was actually nothing to fear. That death is nothing to you. You'll get this feeling of like, oh, let this body live for another hundred years. Let it die today. It's nothing to me. If the body gets sick, you go, oh, okay, I'll take care of it. Let the body take care of itself, really. Um, but ultimately, it's nothing to you. If there's grief in the mind, whatever. Because you found a dimension in yourself beyond all physicality, beyond all psychology, and you're now living from that place. You've taken a stand in Shiva, in pure awareness. And as a result, you see this entire world as nothing but a lila, a game, a dance. And it doesn't mean that you won't be able to act effectively in this world. In fact, your life will be a beautiful one, a joyful and fearless life. And you might not change anything about what you do. For all intents and purposes, you might go to the same job, do the same things with the same people. But for you, everything has changed. You know, so that's the promise. And it's called Anupaya. Once you hear it, the pathless path, once you hear this teaching, done, finished, you know. And hopefully, you know, when we give the teaching, when you hear it, it will at least, at least on an intellectual level, offer you a glimpse into what is possible in spiritual life. Everything we do, the repetition of mantras, japa, the practice of asana and pranayama and rituals, puja, everything we do is to prepare us for this one insight. So in some sense, japa, 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 yeah, in some sense, we're skipping to the end of spiritual life now. This knowledge is usually restricted because it can often be misunderstood. And really, sometimes it can create this weird inspiration to just go to the Himalayas. And, and that's not very productive because you'll find that it wasn't actually a genuine awakening and you go to the Himalayas only to suffer in the cold and the ice and the rocks and all that, you know. You realize the inspiration faded. So when you hear the teaching, it might cause a glimpse, like a recognition, but something usually happens, which is it fades. 
So if you catch a glimpse today, and I pray to Shiva that we all will, if you catch that glimpse, note, be very careful, feel how it feels. It's, 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 it's a feeling. It's not something like, oh, I understand it. No, no. If you understand it, you'll feel it. It was, it's a kind of ineffable sweetness and beauty and peace. It's a wonderful, liberating feeling. If you catch that sweetness, if you truly understand the implication of what is about to be said, you might notice that it ebbs away. So after the lecture, after you hear the teaching, you go back into your life and you feel kind of elated for a few, maybe minutes, or maybe hours, maybe even days, if the awakening was strong, if the Shakti really was strong, Shakti Pata. But then, sadly, you come down, like the acid trip ends, right? And, and you start to feel like, oh my God, my old patterns are creeping back in again. I'll tell you why in just a moment. God willing, I'll tell you why. These patterns come back, you know. Oh my God, I, I've lost it. I've lost that feeling. I forgot. And then you come back to a book or a lecture and then oh, you get it again. And then you become addicted to lectures. Completely missing the point of spiritual life. <laughs> because, um, <laughs> because why did it leak? What happened was you weren't ready for the teaching, actually. You got it. You understood it. But because of a lack of strength, in your energy body, meaning because of a lack of spiritual practice in the sense of japa, purification of the mind, in the sense of devotion, purification of the heart, because your energy body, your um, sukshma sharira, your pranamaya kosha, your etheric body wasn't strong, there were leaks. And once you get the teaching, and I'm speaking to you mystically now, once you get the teaching, those leaks cause the, the energy of the teaching, the sensation of enlightenment to fade away. You know, and then you go back to like being a samsara in a worldling. Your old patterns creep in again, you know, and you find you just stop meditating. You just, if you get this realization, a truly mature person, what they'll do is they will intensify their spiritual practice. So if this glimpse comes, what you will feel like doing is doubling down on your meditation. Because now when you sit in meditation, there's a new sweetness, you know, you can just kind of sit in that formless awareness and there's a tremendous beauty and grandeur to it that with reluctance, you'll only come out of your meditation. You'll spend hours every day just meditating. And even when you're not meditating, you'll be thinking about this. You know, you won't go back to your worldly stuff. Even though you're at Starbucks serving, you'll be thinking about this, you know. And not only that, one way to know that this has really taken place is that you will be delighted by all religions. So you read a bit of the Bible and it's delightful. You read a bit of the Quran and you're like, you're like Rumi will tickle you. Like everything in the world that's spiritual will suddenly feel more alive to you. It's like you suddenly get it. And you look at Shiva and you go, there's a beauty to spirituality now. Because once you get this, it inspires you in spiritual life. No, everything is beautiful. So... When you get the glimpse, and you all will, whether listening to Sarva Priyanandaji or listening to reading a book or whatever, when you get that glimpse, the important thing is to double down on spiritual life. Why? So that you can stabilize yourself in that understanding. So another contribution of Tantra, and this word comes from the Kashmiri school of, 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 of Tantra, um, Jivan Mukta. Jivan Mukta is one who is liberated while embodied. We won't go into it now because last week's lecture and the week before that was all about what a Jivan Mukta is, what it means to live in this world embodied yet liberated. Um, essentially, in summary, it means being fearless. It means being joyful. So a Jivan Mukta is not just one who has had the realization. Anybody can have the realization and everybody does, right? Jivan Mukta is not one who has merely realized truth. It's one who has stabilized that truth on every level of their being and made that truth manifest in their life. That's why Swami Vivekananda says, uh, the goal is to preach unto humanity their innate divinity and how to make such a divinity manifest in each and every movement of life. 
Very tantric idea that Vivekananda Ji is expounding there. It's about manifestation, integration. Realization is stabilization. So in the Bhagavad Gita, it's called Stiti Pragnya, meaning sage of stabilized wisdom. So this isn't just a feeling that comes and goes. It's something that you live in now, permanently. So your default state. Now my question to you is, when you are done with all your tasks, what does your mind do? This is how you kind of can gauge your maturity in spiritual life. Yeah, sitta pragya, exactly. This kind of idea of stabilize. Stiti means established. Stiti, uh, pragya, um, wisdom. So stiti pragya. Now, what is what happens when you're not doing something? Say you're like working Starbucks and you're filling up coffee or whatever. Now you're done with your job. What does your mind do then? Does it dawdle and daydream and conjure up fantasies and projections and uh, ideas about what you'll do tomorrow? Does it reminisce about the past? Or does the mind naturally become meditative? Does it start to think about Shiva or your guru or Christ or something? What does your mind do when you leave it to your own devices, its own devices? So if it goes off into some fantasy land, you know, we call this vikalpa. If it starts to have differential thought constructs, more work is necessary. If you've truly had this glimpse, then you'll notice the mind in quiet times, in, in, in moments of peace, just plunges into silence. It goes into a kind of non-discursive place. So let's do the teaching. Now, for this teaching to take place, there are a few steps. I'll take a deep breath. And we hear it from the heart. So almost all tantric um, teachings begin with sit in the heart space, hridayam, center. Go to the center. Go to the essence. Don't worry about the intellectual quality of the teaching. Simply be interested in its kind of vibration, it's feeling, feel the teaching. It is as follows. I'm going to start with a highly tantricized Advaita text, actually. Because you need Advaita for Tantra. So we'll start with the highly tantricized Advaita text, Drigdrishya Viveka. It's a southern Indian text from Vidyaranya Swami. Um, and it's a kind of tantric text. So let's see how this works. I'm going to point to something. Here is this Ayurvedic copper water bottle. This is an object in the world. And we live in a world full of objects, things, other people and things. The teaching is as follows. The object is something that is being seen. It's, by definition, an object. In the subject-object dichotomy, it stands in relation to me as an object to a subject. My eyes, the organ of perception, is acting as a subject to whom the object bottle is appearing. It's immediately apparent to me in every subject-object experience that the subject, me, is something other than the object, something different from, something apart from the object, right? It's a fact. I don't think I'm the bottle. I think I'm the eyes looking at the bottle. I just feel different from the bottle. That's, that's enough. And not only that, I don't feel like I'm looking at myself from the point of view of the bottle. I'm looking at the bottle from the point of view of my eyes. So just note where you are in that relationship. I'm the eyes looking at the bottle. So, we observe that the seen and the seer are always different from one another. I am the seer. I am not the seen. So the bottle is in the world and Nish is over here. In other words, I, Nish, am the eyes 
and the world of objects is other than me. This is, okay, I'm just, this is a truism. This is your basic experience of life, right? This should be descriptive. This is not new. This is just how it feels. But look closer. If this is indeed true of every subject-object relationship, then don't you notice that the eyes themselves can be made into the object, wherein the subject is the mind looking at the eyes? In other words, the eyes, which I previously took to be me, the seer, are now rendered to me as the scene, the object. I have now objectified my body, quite literally. I am now the mind looking at my body. In other words, I have interiorized my sense of who I am away from the body and I've taken a stand in the mind. In other words, I've given the body back to nature. I've said now the body is no more me than the bottle is me. The bottle is an object appearing to me. The body is also an object appearing to me. Do you not feel that? And you would say, well, what about pain? If I hit the bottle, I don't feel pain. Well, what is pain but an object appearing to you? You are the seer, not the scene. So you are not sad. Sadness is an object appearing to you. It comes and it goes. You are not in pain. Pain is an object coming and going. You are the one to whom it occurs. You are the mind, not the body. What is, and then we can go even further than that, and this requires perhaps some meditation. The body is an object to the mind, but the mind is an object to me, awareness. Behind the mind, behind each thought, there is a pure witness to whom those thoughts are occurring. Can you not feel that now? Even as we talk, even as we sit here, even as thoughts, emotions, and sensations arise, to whom does it all occur? It cannot be to Chad. It cannot be to Nish, because Nish is also occurring to me. Nish is a thought, and that thought is an object to me, the awareness. As Swami Sarva Pirandaji says beautifully, when you think a thought, 2 plus 2 equals 4, are you aware of that thought, or is that thought aware of you? In other words, is 2 plus 2 looking at you saying hello? Or are you looking at 2 plus 2 equals 4? Obviously, the thoughts are inert things. That means that Nish is an inert thing. Nish is just a thought or a series of thoughts, really. It's dead. Nish is dead. Nish doesn't live. It's just kind of as inert as this bottle, as inert as this body. So finally, I can say, once I take a stand in awareness that I am something other than the world, other than the body, other than the mind. I've given the mind, body, and world all back to what we might call prakriti, nature. It just belongs to nature. And I am purusha, pure spirit. And if you grok this, then you're free. Because no longer do you think that what happens to the body happens to you. No longer do you feel like grief in the mind is necessarily something that says anything about you. Just grief. Watch how it comes and goes. So she broke your heart yesterday. You thought it was the end of the world. Today, you don't think about it anymore. Come and gone. So don't you think that the grief of today will be gone tomorrow? Don't you think the pain of today will be pleasure of tomorrow? What's it to you? Should this body live for another hundred years or die right now in a nuclear strike? What's it to you? Because you are not the body. You see, you're not the mind. That's Sankhya. So thus far, we've achieved Sankhya. Sit with this realization for a moment and then we'll go one step further. How to practice this? Every time something occurs, you say, to whom is this occurring? 
When you think a thought, you say, well, to whom is this thought occurring? When you feel a sensation in the body, you say, to whom is this sensation occurring? And then in each and every one of these instances, you become more interested in the subject. In other words, notice how the object part of this equation is more interesting to you in the unenlightened state. You really care about the content of your experience. Well, what do these dreams mean? <laughs> but eventually, you stop caring about the content and you become more interested in the context, meaning you become more interested in the awareness in which this experience is occurring as opposed to the experience itself. When you get to this stage, it doesn't matter what the experience is, you see. Each one is an opportunity to interact with the subject that you are. So you're hearing words now. Who cares what I'm saying? More interesting is the one to whom these words are occurring. Do you feel that right now? Behind each cognition. Inhale into it. The smell of the breath, the sound of the breath. Your thought about the breath. To whom is it all occurring? You might say to me, the ego, the ahankara. Sure, yes, around the ahankara is accretized all these thoughts, these sensations, these experiences. It's easy to mistake the ahankara for the witness. And that's why without a lot of meditation, you will think that we're talking about you, the ego. And I'm not even talking about nish, I'm talking about that felt sense of meanness, the ahankara. I'm not talking about that. To something deeper, that ahankara also occurs, the witness. And that witness cannot be talked about or experienced. This is where language stops. Now it's the job of your own pratiba, your own intuition to kind of understand this. Okay, we'll go one step further. So here's the witness. Let's just at least interact with it on an intellectual level now. The witness and the world. Have you ever, as a witness, experienced a world apart from that pure awareness, apart from the witness. In other words, can there ever be such a thing as an objective world outside of awareness? If there was, who would be around to be aware of it? Who would be there to verify it? To whom would such an objective world occur? So I might be saying now that this room does not exist apart from awareness. And you might say, come on, Nish, if you leave the room, it's still there, no? Duh, but it's still within awareness. It might not be within Nisha's knowledge, but it is within awareness. And you could say, well, what if you set up a camera and you walked out of the room and then you came back and you looked at that camera and saw that there was footage of the room with no one in it? Well, then my response would obviously be, isn't that data also in your awareness? Or rather, I should say, in you, the awareness? All the data you have about an objective world is data that occurs to a subjective perceiver, a pramata. So there will never be an experience of an object without the subject. In fact, to a large extent, the object depends on the subject. For if there was no subject, we could not coherently say there could be an object. Yeah. And Laura says, light bulb. So the minute we think there is an actual physical reality out there, yeah, exactly, that's an error. So you become lost in kind of uh, erroneous thinking. So let's demonstrate now. Look at this bottle again. Another experiment. What is the essence of this bottle? So I might say, okay, this is now Ayurvedic copper water bottle. You have a name, Ayurvedic copper water bottle. What is the essence of the name Ayurvedic copper water bottle? And you might say, the form. Yeah, sponsored. The form. 
it's a certain shape, a certain texture, a certain color that creates as an emergent property the label Ayurvedic copper water bottle. Without this form, there would not be the label. The label depends entirely almost on the form. In other words, if someone has never seen an Ayurvedic copper water bottle, they could never think the label Ayurvedic copper water bottle. It wouldn't be part of their reality. And now if I give them the label Ayurvedic copper water bottle, they might be able to see a certain form. So you can see the form and the label, name and the form, Amarupa, kind of come together. So what is the essence of the form then? Meaning, without the form, there wouldn't be the label, right? And by now, you're probably intuiting that by essence, I mean that which is inalienable from that thing. So the essence of the name is the form. Without the form, you couldn't have the name. What's the essence then of the form? In other words, what do you need to have first in order to have an experience of such a form as this? What do you need to see this color, to experience this texture, to hear this sound? What do you think? What is required? What do you think? Sense organs, precisely. Without eyes, there would be no bottles. So I need a sense organ to be able to perceive this object. And without this, what, what do I need in order to have a sense experience? So what's the essence of my sensing? Obviously, my mind. Without the mind, there, yeah, I wouldn't say brain, I would say mind, but yeah, brain, you could say it's the organ, but the mind is the subtle body, sukshma sharira, to whom that organ is relaying information. So without a mind, I couldn't have the sense of such a form. And without the sense of such a form, I couldn't have the name Ayurvedic copper water bottle. And now the final question, the clincher, what is the essence of the mind? What does the mind require? What is the support of the mind? If not, Awareness. Wi-Fi, yes. Awareness. So look at this closely. This one realization is enough. So be serious here because it's very important. If you grok this, you will have your awakening, your opening, at least, just a glimpse at least. Awareness is required for the mind. Without awareness, there couldn't be a mind. Mind is required for sensing. Without a mind, there couldn't be any sensing. Sensing is required for a form. Without sensing, there wouldn't be a form. And a form is required for a label, for a name. What is a world, if not a collection of names and labels? From the Norse word verald, meaning man-world, world is nothing more than a series of concepts that you take to be real, objective, and independent of you. How could it be independent of you, though, when all of those names are in essence forms, and when all of those forms are in essence sense perceptions, and when all of those sense perceptions are in essence mind, and when all mind is in essence awareness. So again, I ask you, what is this bottle made of? What is the, e the essence of this bottle? And you must now recognize that it is awareness. This thing cannot be made of anything other than awareness. It is an appearance in awareness. Its substance is awareness. And now you have a choice here. When you look at the bottle, you can choose to see it as a bottle or you can see it as awareness. But then, who are you? Are you not awareness? Did you not discover in that first exercise that you were the ultimate awareness? That the basic, most fundamental part of your experience right now is pure witnessing. Non-discursive, pre-conceptual, pre-cognitive witnessing. 
If you feel that, that you are the witness, and if you have just identified that this bottle is that same witness, are you not the bottle? In other words, are you not all things, all people? Is not every emotion you appearing to you? Is it not just awareness, being aware of itself? Now in Tantra, this is the key. Prakasha Vimarsha. My witnessing is called a Prakasha. I am shining forth awareness. Advaita stops at Prakasha. Advaita Vedanta stops at Prakasha. Tantra goes, or non-dual Tantra goes one step further and says, Prakasha has a Vimarsha function, which is the ability of awareness to double back on itself and perceive itself, which is what happens whenever I encounter anything. And that, if I know what I'm seeing, should be delightful. Why is it delightful? Now, Next idea, beauty. Beauty or bliss? Hi. Whenever you've experienced something beautiful, notice it's not the thing that you found beautiful, but the fact that you are aware of it. In other words, when you look at a flower, what's beautiful is not the flower. What's beautiful is coming into contact with that non-discursive, pre-conceptual awareness in which flowerness is vibrating. So remember now all the times of beauty, like looking at a sunset or going to a great rock show or your first kiss or a feeling of maybe solving a math problem for the first time. And it's a wonderful feeling. All these experiences of beauty. Note, there was a sense of timelessness to it, no? You kind of got unstuck from time. It felt like an eternal moment suspended in eternity. There was a kind of aspatiality to it, no? You kind of forgot that you were in Canada, that you were in Chicago, that you were in India. You just felt like you were there or even outside a concept there. And you kind of were stopped in your tracks. You know how they say life is not about how many breaths you take, but the moments that take your breath away. There's an instant pranayama that happens. Kumbhaka, when you have beauty. Beauty stops your breath. And by virtue of that, it stops your mind. And there are no words. Beauty is a wordless wonder. An experience of beauty is any experience that takes you beyond your concepts, your words, your sense of time, your sense of space, your sense of causality. Beauty is an irrational experience. The definition of the word ecstasy is to go beyond yourself. So when you have a perception of beauty, what you've done in that moment is somehow or other um, broken the mind. A Zen koan, if you will, has been presented before you and you experience beauty. And it's irreplic- you can't replicate it because if you go to the same concert next year, it might not happen again for you. And more importantly, it was not an objective experience because the asshole next to you hated the concert and had bad things to say about it. You were there in rapture and they missed it. If it was an objective experience, um, then you could say that it had to do with the experience itself. If there was something about that experience that was beautiful, then anybody who experienced it would have found it beautiful, No. But that's not what happens. Beauty is entirely uh, subjective, idiosyncratic, personal, which means beauty is more about you than the thing. Beauty is more about the awareness than the thing appearing in awareness. So now we bring all of this together. Awareness is what you are. And anytime you have experienced beauty, meaning, joy, wonder has been an experience of awareness. So what could awareness be if not the source of all beauty? everything you have appreciated in your life as beautiful is just a reflection of you. So thereby we can call this thing chid, pure consciousness, 
Ananda, meaning bliss. Chid Ananda is the name that we give to awareness because it is awareness saturated with beauty, with meaning, with peace, with an ineffable glory. That's why once you have the glimpse, you can just kind of sit there and be with it. It's enough. It's so beautiful, so sweet. It's a joy indescribable. So pure. What a unalloyed joy. It's like, that's it. You can sit with that. So we say, Chid Ananda Ganna, a bliss saturated awareness. That's what you are, in essence. You know what another word for that is? Shiva. Shiva is the name of this formless consciousness bliss absolute. So by the time we get to Kashmiri Shaivism, non-dual tantra has kind of dispensed with the mythological Shiva and in its place established a kind of Brahman figure, which is you, in essence, consciousness bliss. And that's what we mean when we say Shiva. Shiva literally means auspiciousness, blessing. And Shiva is awareness. And another word for it is Chitti. Chitti, it's awareness, but it's a feminine singular, which is a goddess. So when you say Chitti, what you're saying is goddess awareness. Now check this. This is the ultimate synthesis of non-duality. By calling awareness a goddess, you have preserved the tradition's penchant for devotion and dualistic worship without losing the highest metaphysical insight of Indian Upanishadic spirituality, which is that God is ultimately, in essence, you. Um, in other words, God is the Godhead, and you are the Godhead. So it's not that you are God, it's that you and God share the same ground of being. And therein lies your liberation. So in the Course of Miracles, our Course of Miracles, it says, nothing unreal exists, nothing real can be harmed, therein lies the peace of God, or something like that, you know. So um, this is the tradition of Tantra. The idea is, you see Shiva in all things. So we'll close with the opening of the Pratyabhigya Hridaya Sutra, which is, um, let's say, a prayer to Shiva. And it goes something like this. Om Namah Shivaya Satatam Panchakritya Vidhayine Chidananda Ganaswatma Paramartava Basine Hail unto thee, Shiva, thou who art the tremendous grand truth, thou art the doer of the five acts, and thou art verily Chidananda Ganna, awareness replete with joy. Thou art Svatma, this very own self. Hail unto thee. That's the ultimate prayer in the Pratyabhikya school. What are the five acts? Very briefly, what does awareness do? Remember, you're not going to get this from a Vedantist. To, in a Vedantist kind of point of view, awareness doesn't do anything. It just witnesses. Witnesses is not doing. What, the, what does is the mind and the body. But we say, no, Shiva is tremendously active. He does five things, actually. Awareness. And you are doing it now. So what does God do? God creates, right? Every religion will say that. God sustains. God destroys. God reveals herself to you. That's called grace. Or God hides herself from you. Or rather, you hide yourself from God. These are the five things that God does. It's called shrishti, creation. Stittihi, preservation. Samhara, dissolution or destruction or reabsorption more appropriately in the tradition, anugraha, which means grace, and nigraha, which is the withdrawal of grace. So God is playing this game of hide and seek, right? Okay, that's what God does. 
And you could even say in the Vedic pantheon, uh, Shiva is Samhara, the destroyer. Brahma is the Shristi creator fellow. And Vishnu is the preserver. And you have this trinity of functions of God. So Shiva, Brahma, Vishnu, they can be seen as functions of the Godhead. You know? So you're getting some kind of Vedic um, influence. Now, interestingly enough, Shiva, um, as pure awareness, is performing these five acts. Verify this here and now in your own experience. Are you not in every moment creating that experience? So close your eyes. Open them. Look at someone's face here in the, in the screen. Just like focus on one face. Suddenly, that face that wasn't there is now here. There was a creation to you of this face. Look at it. Beautiful. Now savor it. Look at that face and really enjoy. Just, just look at that face, you know. You're savoring it. This is called stithihi. As long as I look at your face, you're there for me. Now, this is the craziest part. This is mind-blowing. You're going to slowly close. Before you close your eyes, just look at, keep looking at the face. Savor it. Really be with the face. When you close your eyes now, notice what's going to happen is in your mind, there will be a subtle impression or trace of that face. In other words, the face that you see before you will take on a subtler form as a memory or as an impression in your mind. Follow that impression into its dissolution. In other words, watch how the face you're looking at now will turn into an impression and watch how that impression is reabsorbed into consciousness. Ready? Okay, close your eyes. Watch this. Inhale. Okay, open the eyes. Exhale. Didn't you feel like a, a, a thing that you saw became a subtle thing that you remembered went back into awareness? In other words, did you not reabsorb that sight back into you? If awareness is the cause of any cognition, then that cognition returns to its source, return to sender, awareness. Now, the most radical idea you're going to get from Kashmir Shaivism is that this world is not objective. You know that. We just explained that. Um, it's being projected forth from your eyes. But this is not a solipsistic point of view, and I'll explain in just a moment. Um, I know we've read a lot in this lecture, but it is our Shivaratri special, so trying to get as much Tantra to you as I can. It's a very sophisticated and, and broad tradition, so forgive me for the verbosity here. We're getting to the end. You're, you've been troopers so far. We're almost there. Now, this idea is, as I open my eyes, I project a world. The longer I look at the world, the longer I savor it, the more energy I give to it through my attention, the more it's real to me. And the moment I withdraw my attention and my energy, that world gets, gone. it goes into awareness. Don't just believe this. Feel it to be true. Search your feelings, Look, You know it to be true. You feel that uh, world going back into you. Now you might say, no, Nish, there's still a world out there. To this we'd say, how do you know? And secondly, um, there isn't in terms of your world. So maybe for other perceivers, other pramatas, other uh, knowers, there is a world, but your unique vantage point on reality has been withdrawn. So at least your slice of this reality, this intersubjective experience, that has been reabsorbed. So even at your current stage, as a jiva, you are doing exactly what Shiva does. Is this not proof that you are Shiva? Of course, now you might say, what about the other two, right? Anugraha and Nigraha. Okay, you've sold me. I create, I sustain, I destroy. Which also should free you because are you suffering now? Why? Because you want to. In other words, the only reason there is grief in your mind is because you're not done savoring it. 
The moment you're finished savoring that grief, you will naturally withdraw your attention, divert it elsewhere, and that thing, like an unused limb, will wither up and die away. Haven't you ever been depressed before and then suddenly you just stop thinking about it and it's gone? Similarly, you are now in control of all of your experiences by the power of your attention alone. Aren't you God? Aren't you Shiva creating experiences by your attention? You look at something, you've created it. You continue to look at it, you sustain it. You stop looking at it, it's gone. And I mean this for mental experiences too. Okay, what about the other two, Anugraha and Nigraha? This is very practical stuff because Anugraha is any moment in which you rest in non-discursive awareness at the end of each experience. So remember, an experience has three parts, creation, maintenance, and destruction. Now the fourth part could be resting in non-discursive awareness. So try this. The next time you get to the end of a thought, like a thought train or an experience, next time you taste something sweet, savor the sweetness, and when the sweetness goes away, see what you do next. Do you go to the next thing? The next bite? Do you go to the next train of thought? Think about something new? Go and do something new? Or do you just sit there and savor the awareness in which that experience came and went? If you can sit with awareness, more and more you'll become absorbed in pure awareness. That's called anugraha or grace. Tad Parigyane, when you know this truth, Chittam evantara mukki bhavena chetana padad chittahi. When you know this truth, more and more the mind, chitta, becomes evantara mukki bhavena. The mind, mukka means face, uh, antara means inside. So antara mukki bhavena means inward facing. More and more you become interested in the subject. Your mind withdraws like a turtle pulling its limbs back into the shell. And uh, you realize that the mind is nothing but awareness. Chetana padad chittahi. The mind is nothing but chitti, awareness, pure expanded awareness. So that's what will happen to you if you cultivate anugraha. What about nigraha though? Nigraha is when you rush into another thought. When you fail to savor this moment and you just jump into some other thought, uh, you're back to the world of delusion. Tan maya, sorry, tan mayo maya pramata. One who is identified with the mind is a mayic perceiver, a perceiver of maya. What it means to be in maya is just to be identified with your mind without an ability to surrender the mind. Right? So that's the practical teaching. You're performing the five acts even now. Tatapi tadvat pancha krityani karoti. Even as a samsarin, as a worldling, you right now as a jiva are doing what Shiva is doing on a micro level. Is that not enough evidence for you that you are Shiva? Is that not enough for you to believe that as you expand in your spiritual practice, you'll become more and more Shiva? Now, the other implication here is that if you are experiencing something, it's because you want to. In other words, Maya is not here as an error. Maya is here as art. Shiva desires to experience himself as this. And for that reason and that reason alone, he took on a mind. And mind is, of course, an expression of Maya in order to experience a certain role. So if you're experiencing something right now, you might not want it. But I'm sorry to say Shiva does. Ultimately, who are you? You are Shiva. So if there's grief in your life, okay, that's what Shiva wants right now. Shiva is experiencing this grief because it's inherently valuable to experience something, even grief. And when you're finished with this experience, like suffering, you might become a spiritual seeker. 
And then spiritual seeking, you know, try to get out of suffering. When do you become enlightened? When Shiva is finished with his experience of seeking. Then you become enlightened. You see, Shiva is in control the whole time. Shiva is a spiritual seeker only as long as that's interesting to him. As long as the game of being like a seeker and doing this philosophy, as long as that's fun, he will be that. The moment he's done with that, he'll be enlightened. You know, if he wants to suffer some more, he'll suffer some more. He'll watch the Super Bowl, drink beer and make snide political remarks and continue to be bigoted. That's fun too, right? I remember a long time ago, um, someone had visited me here in LA and she was explaining to me, we're, it's the first time that we met. She was texting, oh, I'm so sorry. It's, I'm late. I'm late and I'm anxious and this is so hard. And I remember saying to her, well, that's fun too, no? And we just had to pause there for a moment and just, you know, it was like a really nice moment for me. Because it's a feeling of like, yeah, boredom, all right, beautiful. Grief, hmm, give it to me. Because it doesn't matter anymore what experience you're having. The fact that you're having the experience is enough. The what you are experiencing, who gives a damn? That you are experiencing, ah, that's where the magic is. So the final line that we'll close with is the opening line. And this is the Anupaya teaching, actually, of Tantra. Everything thus far has been a kind of Anupaya teaching from um, Vedanta. This is the Anupaya teaching from Tantra. Chitti Sva Tantra Vishva Siddhi Hetuhu. Hetu means to create, to cause. Vishva means everything, meaning the totality of your experience. Siddhi means to complete, to perfect, to cook, to perform, or to like magic. It means magic or power. So you could say the power of everything or the magic of everything was caused. Caused by what? By awareness. Because awareness is free. So chitti, pure awareness, the goddess awareness. Svatantra, svatantriya means ever free, ever potent. Free, meaning free to do something. Do, to, to do what? To project a world into existence. Right? So chitti svatantra, awareness ever free, is the cause of the magic of everything. The world that you see around you is a magic show. And you caused it. You are the source of all of this. And you might say, come on, Nish. I, Nish, cannot be the cause of all of this. That's solipsism. And, and yes, we don't, we're not saying that actually. We're not saying Nish is the cause of all of it. We're saying Shiva is and I'm Shiva. I'm not Nish. Nish is a contracted Shiva. Shiva is an expanded Nish. Shiva is wreaking havoc in Nish, Nish's life perhaps. Nish just has to get with the program. You know, um, Nish might, Nish's will might not be aligned with Shiva's will. That, that's always a possibility because perhaps Nish doesn't know his Shiva. But if Nish knows his Shiva, then even as Nish, he can enjoy what's coming up in front of him. Be it the brink of a nuclear winter, he has to admit, ah, this too is a game of Shiva. This too is what Shiva wants to experience. If I'm cold at the bus stop, I have to smile and say, ah, my lord, thou hast come to experience cold. Eat up. Nish should not cock-block Shiva. Do not stand between the Nazgul and his prey. In other words, if Shiva is here to experience something, you better damn well be there with your experience. Don't try to equi equivocate away from the experience. Don't make labels or stories or resist. Just be there. If you're currently undergoing a surgery and the anesthetics give out, as Westerfer will probably tell you in a bit, just be there, baby. Just experience it. Just let yourself surrender to the totality of your experience, as intense as it is. And I promise you, your resistance was the cause of your suffering. You take away your resistance, that suffering will be ecstasy. That's why the guy who sawed his arm off, you know, in 127 hours or whatever, the guy who sawed his arm off is now a spiritual teacher because he experienced ecstasy. 
you know? Once you get rid of your mind, you will never have grief as pain. You will have grief as beauty. So, Chitti, Svatantra, Vishva Siddhi Hetuhu means Shiva or Goddess Awareness, Kali, pure awareness. Shiva Kali, same thing, Shiva Shakti. Chitti caused the world to exist using her own freedom. And then the next line, yeah, Chitti, Svatantra, Vishva Siddhi Hetuhu, exactly. Now, the next line, Svechaya, Svabittao, Vishvam Unmilayati, using her own self as a canvas. Bitti means canvas, Swa means self, so Svabitti. Switchaya, sorry, Swabittao. Switchaya, so Switchaya means my own urge. Swa is self. Itcha, it's like the English itch. As, as Liam said so beautifully, curiosity. I like that word. You know, I never thought of that word, curiosity. But uh, in traditional tantra, it's kind of like a creative urge, meaning a, a will. It usually gets translated as will. So the will of awareness to use herself as a canvas for the unmilayati, this unmesha, this blooming, this expansion of a world. Unmilayati of vishvam, of everything. So using herself as a canvas driven by her own urge to create, she bloomed this world into existence. And at any time, she can take it back, reabsorb it. Now, not only this, that first sentence, for us, this is the more practical part. Uh, the first way of reading it is the metaphysics, right? Why is all of this here? Because it's been emanated and projected by awareness. That's a metaphysics. You've got a description of a metaphysical process. Okay, good for Shiva. What about me? Okay, now, this is the more practical part. Read that sentence backward. Because remember, Sanskrit and Krishemara. Raja himself, in his own commentary, says this about verse 1. Sanskrit is very tricky. Very uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek. Sentences can have multiple meanings. So this sentence, Chitti Svatantra Vishva Siddhi Hetuhu, can also be read to mean this. A recognition of awareness as free can be caused by an experience of everything. In other words, any experience is a profound opportunity to recognize that you are pure awareness ever free. This is Tantra in practice. This is living as a householder and letting each experience of your life, whether it's grief, whether it's pleasure, whether it's boredom, each of them is a trigger, is a remembrance of what you really are, you know? All right, so let's close there. I think that's enough for our um, Kashmiri Shaivism special uh, for Shivaratri. On Monday, we'll be meeting again and we'll do a little more Shiva stuff, you know, of course. But today, I just wanted to give you, I suppose, the overarching idea of Kashmiri Shaivism, the five acts of God, the five holy acts, and also the five powers of God. We didn't really get into it, but God is five powers, God is five acts, God is represented by the Nataraja. On Monday, we'll talk a little bit more about the symbology of the Nataraja and the snake and the tiger skin and all of that. We'll talk about Ganesha, all of that on Monday. But today, because it's Thursday, Tantra Thursdays, I just wanted you to, to kind of take away that core teaching of our tradition. Those of you who will be here for the Vignana Bhairava class starting in about three or four weeks, um, you'll notice the Vignana Bhairava is just full of these techniques of savoring the subject regardless of the object. So it will say, you know, when you're running away from war, and you're afraid, I, all these war metaphors today, given our headlines, you're running away from war, um, that, that fear is recognize Shiva. That's, that's just and fit to recognize Shiva. You see, this is like so effective um, because you can do it now. You can do it all the time. But it's quite hard to remember. So if you have a mantra, that's your anchor. In verse 17, 
Vikalpa Kashaya, the dissolution of mental thought constructs, is achieved by Ekagrata, by bringing the mind to a single point. So if you want to get better at this technique, start with your mantra. Repeat your mantra in meditation with single-minded focus and devotion. In fact, Kashema Raja says, fix your attention to your heart. It's something like, entrust your mind to the heart. So try to feel yourself here. Don't, don't be here too much. Feel yourself in the heart and chant your mantra. Swami Brahmananda, my Guru's Guru's Guru, would say, let, let your, uh, let your japa, let the word, the name of God be a continuous stream flowing within you, whatever you do. And Westerver says it becomes easy to remember when you see how it dissolves suffering. Yes, it's a natural movement, so natural for things to dissolve. So, Chittisvatantra Vishva Siddhi Hetuhu. Let us close with um, just chanting the first five uh, verses of this Pratyabhikya Hridaya Sutra with the opening invocation. So if you have the text, you might chant along in your own space. Let's come and offer this to Shiva. First, let's say, Om Namah Shivaya Hail unto thee, Shiva. Vishva Sharira Shivaika Rupa Eva Kevalam this world is the body of God. What I am to my body, God is to the world. And recognizing that, I am free. Sarva Shabda Shivasya Eva Shabda. Every sound is a sound that is Shiva. Sarva Rasa Shivasya Eva Rasa. Every taste is a taste of Shiva. Now the Pratyabhigya Hridaya Sutra. Om Namah Shivaya Satatam Panchakritya vidhayene Chidananda ganasvatma Paramartava basene Chittihi svatantra Vishva siddhi hetuhu Svechaya svabitao Vishva moon mihilayati Tanananurupa Grahya graha kabedat Chitti sankuchatma chitanopi Sankuchita vishvamayaha Chitti reva chitanapadat Avarudha chitya sankuchini chitam Purnamada purnamidam Purnyat purnam mudachyate Purnasya purnam adaya Purnam meva vashishyate Purnam meva vashishyate Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tatsat Shri Parameshwarar Panamastu Shri Ramakrishnar Panamastu Om, hail unto thee, Shiva, thou who art the performer of the five acts of creation, maintenance, reabsorption, self-revelation, and self-concealment. Thou who art verily awareness replete with joy, that is, this essence nature of mine. Awareness, free and independent, is the sole cause of the magic of everything. Using herself as a canvas, driven by her own innate urge to express and experience, she unfurled this entire universe. Universes. 
It appears to be diverse when in reality it is one because of mutually adapted subject-object relationships. Grahya grahaka bedat. I myself am a part of the whole, and as a result, I contain in the part the whole. The mind, then, is nothing more than pure awareness descending down to the level of the mind to experience some object like the color blue or pleasure. For the sake of this experience, thou hast turned thyself into all of this. For the sake of thy remembrance, thou hast reabsorbed thyself into all of that. And that verily I am. Om, that is whole, this is whole, from wholeness comes forth wholeness, from wholeness to wholeness, I salute thee. May this be an offering to Shiva, Parameshwara. May this be an offering to my Parampara Guru, Ramakrishna. May this be an offering to all of you, Shiva incarnate, Shiva embodied. Jai Maheshwara, Jai Shiva Shambho, Jai Bolanath, Jai Bhairava. Om, peace, peace, peace.